Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, Escaping Sleepy Hollow. The scriptures reveal to us that not only have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but also that God's wages for this sin is death, an eternal, zero-reprieve death known as hell. The only way for us to escape the hell we justly deserve is through one who alone has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. He is our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the glory of the gospel is that our salvation is not merely from the damnation of hell, but it is the giving to us of new life, new life in Christ. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. That isn't what sort of title you were expecting for a resurrection morning. Uh, I was telling Ben before we, I came out that there's a certain pressure that you feel as a, as a pastor on Christmas and Easter to, you're very limited in your topics that you can choose from. Everyone's like, uh-huh, now? We know what you're going to talk about, Eric, and so I always want to throw a curveball. I don't want to just give you what you're expecting. So what's this message on? The resurrection. Yes, yes. It's predictable as the sun to rise. Escaping Sleepy Hollow. At least I can give you an unusual title, though. Sleepy Hollow. Now, some of you have heard of the legend of Sleepy Hollow, which this has nothing to do with. (laughs) But I could have just simply named this Escaping Hell. Mm -hmm. You see, hell is a hollow. It is a space. It is an actual place for the dead. It is a place of no return. It is a place that once you go there, you're sort of stuck there. It is a place of judgment. It is a place of punishment. However, the term hell is a modern term. I know that sounds strange, but it's not actually the Hebrew term. It is a modern term, but it's a placeholder for many of us. Because most of us have never done an in-depth study on hell. And did I tell you that that's also part of the message? No, it's not an in-depth study. It's a very thin study, but still maybe a little deeper than most of you would like to go. Most of us would rather avoid the topic altogether. However, what's the resurrection if you don't understand what you're being resurrected from? I mean, come on. What's the value of having a physician if you don't know you're sick? You see, we have a great sickness, and that sickness leads to something very dire and very desperate. And whereas our term typically is hell, There is in the earth, it would appear, I mean, this is a hard topic to be able to dissect and notate. Some people today in the postmodern side of things do not believe hell exists. They believe it's a state of mind. They do not believe that it is a place. Well, I will go on record as saying, no, it is a place. And that's the very concept of the word. It's a place. It's a hollow. It is a location. And it is not a good one. And... In this location or in this hollow, which we assume is in the earth from all practical purposes, that seems to be the best description I could give you is in the earth, Uh, where, by the way, the deeper you get in the earth, the hotter it seems to get. It seems to be pretty hot uh, down there. And so this place seems to have some heat associated with it, too. One of these hollows would be called the Lake of Fire, which as far as I know right now, no one is in the Lake of Fire, but there seems to still be a Lake of Fire that is awaiting the final judgments in which all that have not been found in the book of life will be thrown into. Escaping Sleepy Hollow. The Sleepy Hollows. And so this is the concept of going to sleep and entering the hollow. 
So the Sleepy Hollow. Now I'll give you a whole new appreciation for the term, won't it? Tartarus seems to be a place where the demons in the days of Noah were thrown. Sheol, oftentimes translated hell in the Old Testament, but that is the place of judgment. Abraham's bosom seems to be another location or zone or dimension of this hollow, but it was a place in which those that were righteous or those that had faith went, and many would say, until the death of Christ, and he led them forth in freedom. Hades, uh, typically the place that we would understand, this is the one across the great chasm from, the Abra- from Abraham's bosom where there seems to be torment, where there seems to be extreme thirst and extreme heat, but that thirst is quenchless. No one can ever have their thirst quenched in it. The abyss, the lake of fire. Mm, yes, it's a wonderful thought, isn't it? You know, it's interesting, but many of the greatest preachers throughout the generations would say that the most important theme to preach on is hell, the hollow. Why why would that help us? Well, you have a tendency to listen differently to the truths of the gospel when you have the quake in your soul. Now, I'm not one to try and leverage intimidation or panic attacks uh, against you. However, one of the things that is very critical for us to understand is that we do have a short span of time on this earth. And in that span of time, if we do not respond to the wooing of the Spirit of God, showing us the cross of Jesus Christ, the lone way that we can find salvation, then we all will enter a place absent of his presence. He is a rescuer. And if you enter into a dimension, a hollow, absent of his presence, there is no rescuer there. He is a provider. He is a nurturer. He is a father. And if you enter into that hollow, which is absence of him, there will be no more father. There will be no more nurturing. There will be no one to care for you. There will be no one that has your best interests in mind. And so when we understand that, it has a way of sobering our soul to get us to focus. Because when we don't understand that, we can very easily trivialize this life. And we don't truly understand the gravity of every decision that we make. It is in light of eternity. It is in light of that which is beyond us. So why escape? So remember my title, Escape Sleepy Hollow. Escaping Sleepy Hollow. Doesn't that sound like some action adventure? Why would you want to escape? You know, I've had people that that would tell me that they want to go to hell. Because that's where all their friends are going to be. And I don't think they fully understand how it all works. You see, this is not a place of fun and games and drinking and carousing. This is a place of torment. And any more than being alone in your bed with the sickness of nausea leads you to think of having fun with your friends, I'm having a hunch that when you are in a place of torment, nothing is fun. There's no more laughing. There's no more dancing. This is not a place that anyone should ever desire to go. Well, it's a place of everlasting, never-ending, unanesthetized, ever-conscious torment, pain, and suffering. Who in their right mind would ever want that? You see, the only ones that truly end up here are those that don't truly believe that it exists. If you knew and if you believed what the Word of God says about it, no one would ever choose this. 
willfully choose this. But it is a blindness that leads them to this. Many have been offended by God. They blamed God for their ills and their their difficulties in life, and as a result, they turn away from God. You turn away from God, you turn away from your only source of salvation. You turn away from your only source of solace and comfort. You turn away from the only one that will truly be a father to you, the only one that has your best in mind. You lose that advocate, and you have nothing. What it says in Scripture, and I know that there are many debates in modern Christianity and I'm not even going to say historic Christianity, over the concepts of hell. We have a book that just came out. It didn't come from us, by the way. Uh, It's called Love Wins by Rob Bell, which is basically a modern enunciation of an empty hell, which if God truly is love, then he would never send anyone to hell. And what they misplace is the fact that God is love, and therefore he's given us the cross. The cross is the evidence of his love. And he has made his love expressed to the fullest measure for every single one of us. And so an empty hell is not a statement of a loveless God. A hell is a statement of love. It is a demonstration that God will separate his people from that which is evil and that which is opposed to him. Heaven is not a mixed environment. It is an environment that is separate from the world, separate from that which is evil, separate from that which desires to harm you. That which desires to harm you is judged. Sin, the flesh, the devil, and hell itself. That is under a separation, a condemnation from God. And God says, I love you too much to send you there. So believe, turn, repent, come unto me and be saved. The message is quite clear. What it says in Scripture is it's eternal damnation. The word eternal and everlasting are the same words used to describe God. And so if you're going to use the term eternal or everlasting for God, it would mean without beginning or without end. There is no stopping. And that's the term used. It's an eternal damnation, an eternal judgment, vengeance and eternal, everlasting fire, shame and everlasting contempt, everlasting punishment everlasting destruction. Now, if you ask me how something can be destroyed for everlasting and everlasting, I can't answer that question. All I can do is quote the scripture. And all I can say is, I don't want to find out. And you should join me in that. (laughs) Everlasting chains. The smoke of the torment ascendeth up forever and ever. It's torment day and night forever and ever. It's the wrath of God poured out without mixture. There is no anesthesia. There is no comfort. There is no stop. There is no end. Do not take this lightly. And no rest is offered day or night. And there is no break from the horror, from the nightmare, and from the pain forever and ever and ever. Resology. This is a new study. I didn't, I'm, it's not a new study. It's a new name for the study. But this is a study of the resurrection. And so we'll call it resology. Now, if any of you have gone through Ellerslie, you know about ologies. Ologies are a body of knowledge. So biology, for instance. Uh, we have all sorts of ologies in the Christian faith. For instance, there's eschatology, which is a study of the end. 
You have cosmology, which is a study of the beginnings. You have soteriology, which is a study of salvation. And so it only makes sense that we throw in resology, a study of the resurrection. The study of the resurrection of Christ. Like every other religious ology, eschatology, soteriology, sabbatology, etc., studying the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers yet more reasons to be muddled in debate. By the way, I've already brought up things, if those of you that are learned in Christianity already are, there's some of you that might even be offended with some of the things I've already said. All I'm trying to do is just state it. This is just what it says in the Bible. You can say, well, you're oversimplifying these things, Eric. All those things can be explained away. Hell is not a place. You see, why is it that we argue and labor so long to try and diminish the reality of hell? Jesus spoke on hell a lot more than all of us do. He was not ashamed to just declare exactly what it is. Why was he unabashed in talking about it? Because he knows how important it is that you recognize the significance and the reality of it. It is a place, and it is very real. However, when you start getting into the issues of the resurrection, you start getting into all sorts of debates. Welcome to the debates. First, the historic nature of the event. Did it happen or not? Well, that's one of the big discussions today. Do you know that the Jews actually paid off the Roman soldiers? That they would pass along the false message that the disciples or the apostles had robbed the tomb and stolen the body of Jesus? I don't know. That sure didn't make the Roman guards look too good. However, that's literally what has been propagated. And it says, still to this day, it says in Scripture which, of course, meant that day when it was saying it. However, still to this day, it is still thought that there was a conspiracy to steal the body of Christ, and it was all a joke. Jesus promised that on the third day he would rise again. And guess what? He did. I choose to believe the word of God on the matter and not the Jewish leaders that wanted to hide this fact the ones that crucified the Lord are not the ones I want to turn to and get my information from. Number two, the importance or necessity of the event. So what? Does it really matter if I believe in it? It's one of Rob Bell's statements. It's like, why does everyone make such a big deal? It's okay if someone doesn't believe in the virgin birth. Are, are you sure about that? You see, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, you're actually saying that Jesus isn't the Messiah. Jesus had to be born of a virgin, otherwise he is not the Messiah. It's that simple. He's either Messiah or he's not. So what did you say about the virgin birth? He had to be. The Messiah, if he is not, is a false prophet. Jesus would be a false prophet if he's not born of a virgin. And the Bible says we ought to stone a false prophet. Is he the Christ or not? Jesus also said that he would rise again on the third day. If he doesn't tell the truth, he's a false prophet. Even if he fulfills every other prophecy, he must rise from the dead. And if he doesn't, He's not your Savior. He's not your Christ. Number three, the meaning of the event. So, Jesus went from hell to heaven. Why does that matter to me? Well, we'll discuss that today. It is no small thing that Jesus rose from the dead. Because some of you can say, well, he died. Isn't that enough that I believe that? You know what Paul says in Romans 1? He says that Jesus is proven the Son of God by the fact that he rose from the dead. That is the signal. That is the sign he gave his generation. I will give this generation no signs but the sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the earth, only to be spat up on the third day. And the prophet 
that shows with shimmering skin a newness of life. And everyone says, behold, the Son of God. So how exactly did he rise? People debate these things, by the way. Did the Father raise him up? Did he raise himself up? Or did the Spirit raise him up? Interesting discussion. How helpful is it going to be to parse that one out? By the way, I could give you an argument for each one of those. The Father promised that he would not see corruption. Jesus himself says, I have the power to raise myself up. And the Spirit, and it says, the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in me. Hey, look. God raised him up. (laughs) Number five, what did he accomplish prior to rising? This is where some of the great question marks will start dancing in our head. He was there three days. What was the guy doing? And by the way, that is not the easiest question to answer. Believe me, I've spent a lot of time on this. And there comes a point where you're like, you know what? I don't know that I'm supposed to know. I have questions, but some questions don't receive an answer. God goes silent, as we always say. There's these moments in Scripture. Caleb is taking on the three sons of Anak. They've been standing there for generations, literally the impossible to take down force on the mountain of giants in the land of promise. And all it says is, and Caleb expelled them thence. God, is that all you're giving me? So you died and you rose again. I know that, but there's this three days. I need to know more. We know what we know. And anything that we don't know, it's okay. Now there is more in scripture. I'm sure there's layers to this that we can continue to mine. But did he ransom, did he pay the ransom prior or after he arose? Did he descend into hell and preach? It says that he preached in hell. It doesn't necessarily mean that he shared the gospel. It just said he preached. It's a funny word, preach, which is like a proclamation, sort of like, I am he. I don't know exactly who he preached to. All we know is that he preached. That's odd. But it says it. And who exactly did he lead captive in his resurrectional procession? Was it those in Abraham's bosom? Was he leading in in a show of victory, the devil on a chain and all his angels saying, look, they're defeated. Those are things I can't quite answer. However, both would be true. He did lead his people into a freedom. And he did take them with him into the throne room of grace. He clothed them in his righteousness, anyone who believes. And yet he also made a public spectacle of the devil. So, these are hard things, but at the same time, we still know enough to stand. And so instead of getting distracted by the common debates that splinter us and that cause us to go this way or this way and miss the real point of resurrection life, when you know who the resurrection is, you recognize that it's not a study or a science, it's a person. And that is the great solution to the issues of the resurrection in our life. It's not to splinter it out and to figure out every nuance of it. It's to recognize, wait a minute. This isn't just a study. This isn't just a science. This isn't just a theology. This is a person. The Christophany. A Christophany, the typical word for a theologian would be a theophany or a show of God in the Old Testament. So we have like a theophonic angel. So the angel that wrestled with Jacob would be a theophonic angel. He wasn't just an angel. He was God. And the theophonic angel that led Joshua into the land of promise wasn't just an angel. He was God. Well, in the Old Testament, we also can use the word Christophany, where there are pictures of the Christ. All throughout 
the Old Testament. Jesus is in the Old Testament. You know the manna that came down from heaven? Uh Uh-huh, Jesus. The rock in the wilderness? Uh Uh-huh, Jesus. The tabernacle? Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament. I mean, we could go in through an exhaustive study of just the Christophanies of the Old Testament and have it be week after week of study. In fact, that's what we do here at Ellerslie. Every message we give is a Christophany. It's showing Jesus here, there, and everywhere. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And that's the number one hermeneutic that we teach here at Ellerslie is when you approach the Word of God. Hermeneutic is how you approach the Word of God, how you study the Word of God, how you extract from the Word of God. Our main hermeneutic tool that we use is it's all about Jesus. So everywhere you look, you see Jesus. And so when we're dealing with the resurrection in the New Testament, if you want to understand the resurrection, you go to the Old Testament. And you begin to recognize how it was foreshadowed and the foundation that was laid for us to understand the significance of it. The New Testament flows out and grows out of the Old. And therefore, the Old always prepares us and gives us the foreshadow. It gives us the provision. It's almost like the ram stuck in the bush. When we get to the New Testament, we go and we're like, whoa, he was there the whole while. He's there. It's about him. So the Christophany that I would like to build on today, we're going to call the unstoppable Savior. So in the Old Testament, we have this picture of a God who will not be stopped. When he has an agenda, he will accomplish his agenda. It's that simple. Now, most of you already know that. But you take for granted that fact. Do you know that that is revealed about our God? That he is an unstoppable savior? He says, I am going to rescue them. And then someone could say, good luck. They're enslaved in Egypt. It's a whole nation enslaved as as if you're going to just come in and save them. I will save them. I will deliver them. I will bend Pharaoh to my agenda. That's who God is. And so when God sets out to accomplish his end, nothing can stop him. Now, I I want you to prepare your soul for this, because God has set out an agenda, and what if you awaken to the fact that you are his agenda, and he has come to rescue you? You know what? That alters your entire perspective of what's going to take place in the rest of your life. If you know that there's an unstoppable Savior that has come to redeem you, And he's after you. It gives you a whole new confidence. It's called faith. My God wins. In the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come. By the way, his name is Jesus. Not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Now, that's an interesting line. Jesus has come, and the term is, but according, would mean ushering forth. He has ushered forth throughout history through the lineage of the seed he has ushered forth and he has come forth in the power which the power the word power in the greek is exousia which is a legal authoritative power he has an authoritative power that cannot be denied and it is the power of an endless life now when you hear the word endless you think of a life that doesn't stop but that's the word eternal or everlasting The word endless is actually different, and it doesn't translate very well for us, because we would use a different word to describe it. And so let me give you that Greek word, and you'll understand the power that Jesus has come in. Our word is akatalitas, which means indissoluble, inextinguishable, unstoppable, unable to be destroyed, unable to be hindered, everlasting, endless. You take an akatalitas flame, and you try and blow on it. It doesn't go out. What? So you dump water on it. It doesn't go out. 
You stick it out in the freezing cold weather, negative 40 below, it doesn't go out. In the midst of gusting winds, it doesn't go out. It's akatalitas. It is, we translate it endless, but it is inextinguishable. It is unable to be put out. It will not die. No matter what you do, it comes back. Have you ever had one of those birthday candles? <laughs> and then it comes back? I, we had one of those. We didn't know it was one of those, and we stuck it in the garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> I should have stood back and said, Akatolitas! <laughs> it will not be put out. It's indissoluble. It's inextinguishable. It's unstoppable. It's unable to be destroyed. It's unable to be hindered, everlasting, endless. And what life did God come in? He came in the authority of an unstoppable life. Nothing can stop me, he says. I will gain my ends. A priest who has come ushering forth in the power of an akatolitas life. He is. It's one of our favorite statements around here. He is. And the basis of faith is if you're going to come to God, you must first believe that he is. And you could say he is what? Oh, no, no, we said it correctly. He is. That's what you're supposed to believe. And you say, I know, but he is what? He is love? He is faithful? He is true? Well, yes, he is all those things. But he is is actually the proper name of God. So, the way the Hebrew would work is the name of God, when he declared his name at the burning bush before Moses, he said, I am. And he basically is declaring, this is my name. So what's your name, God? I am. And so that would be pronounced Aye. But when we say it, we don't say I am because we're not. We say he is. And so when we say he is, it's Yahweh which we typically translate as Jehovah. Jehovah, Yahweh. Some people pronounce it Yahweh. He is. And so this is the name of God, the proper name of God. Now what's amazing about Jesus' name is it's the name Yahweh mixed with a verb. And that verb just happens to mean saves. Yahweh saves, or he is salvation. And what life has he come in? He's come in an akatolitas life. He will accomplish that which he has come to do. He is Yahweh who has come to save. And he is ushered forth in the power, in the authority of an unstoppable life. So Jehovah, this is who he is, is. That was a funny way of saying it. This is who he is, is. <laughs> Jehovah, the unchanging, the ceaseless, the perpetual, the always, the same, the uncorrectable, the uneditable, the one who cannot and will not ever change. He is, is a concept basically saying he's always this. So it's his proper name. I've always been this way. I am this way now, and I will always be this way. I just am, God says. And we say, he just always is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When it says that about Jesus, it's basically saying he is the I am. He who was and who is and who is to come. What is that? That's he is. That's the name Jehovah. And that's how he's revealed in the very beginning of Revelation. This is Jehovah. Jesus is. When he speaks, his words express his nature. Doesn't that make sense? So he is, has come to this earth. 
And he, when he speaks, his words express his nature. They're unchanging words. They're words that will always last. They're words that are always true. This is how we believe the Bible in the first place. The Bible is the expressions of the he is. The expressions of the one known as I am. And when he speaks, his words are true words. His words are always the same. His words never change, never alter, never evolve. They just are because they represent his nature and that he has spoken. They are Jehovah words, words that are unchanging, ceaseless, perpetual, always uncorrectable, uneditable, words that cannot and will not ever change. So let's go back into this word and let's go to the breaking of Pharaoh. Now, many of you know the story, and some of you could wonder what this has to do with resurrection, uh, but it has a lot to do with it. You see, there's a foreshadow in the Old Testament of that which we witnessed in the New. There's all sorts of foreshadows. There's all sorts of Christophanies. And the story of Moses standing before Pharaoh was an incredible picture. So right before Moses goes back to Egypt, he's been in the desert for 40 years tending sheep. He runs into a burning bush. And at that burning bush, God declares to him his assignment. But in that assignment, he declares to him his proper name. God reveals that he is. It's the first time in history, because before that, God says, I did not reveal myself as Jehovah to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for whatever reason, he reveals himself now as the unchanging one, the one who is always the same. And what is he about to reveal that is always the same? I have come to save I have an agenda. I am going to deliver my people from the enslavement and from the bondage of Pharaoh. I will do it. Now, in Moses' mind, he could be a little incredulous. Moses, by the way, had some bad attitude in this as well. He wasn't without spot or wrinkle in his attitude. God got upset at a few times. But Moses could easily say, you've got to be kidding, God. How in the world are you going to pull that off? Well, there seems to be a season of signs and wonders. And then there is a season of breaking. And then there is a season of deliverance. And the same is true in the ministry of Jesus Christ. There is, in a sense, the laying before of a nation and of a people, a rod that turns into a serpent, a river that turns into blood, locust. We, we have a movement in a world where something is being evidenced, something is being seen. And then we have something known as Passover. And then we have three days journey to the Red Sea and we have a deliverance. And so what we have is a parallel of sorts. Let's just walk through this. The breaking of Pharaoh, the akatolitos of God is revealed. So in the Old Testament, we have a picture of the akatolitos of God. God has said, I will do it. I am coming in the power of an endless life. And I will accomplish my ends. The burning bush, God reveals his name. The word is spoken, God reveals his end. The nature of God is demonstrated. Within the bounds of his law, he destroys the most powerful nation and sets his people free. What's amazing about how God does this is he does it all legally. He bends Pharaoh. Pharaoh actually is the one that lets his people go. You know that he actually says, take them. Get them out of here. He regrets it pretty soon after that. But you know that legally, they were, God didn't steal his people from Pharaoh. He literally did everything legally. It's very important when you understand the cross. When he stripped us out of the hold of the devil and out of his care, do you know that he did it legally? 
Every single thing he did, he did it legally. He cannot violate his nature. He is who he is. Therefore, he is perfect righteousness. And even how he does what he does is just and perfect. It's all true. And so God himself, the nature of God is demonstrated. Within the bounds of his law, he destroys the most powerful nation and sets his people free. The proving of the unstoppable agenda, negotiating without compromise. Over and over again. It starts out where God is just telling Moses to ask for a reprieve, to go in and worship God in the wilderness, to go a three days journey. It's like, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, Pharaoh wasn't too happy about that. Well, Pharaoh starts to feel the heat of disagreeing with God. And so what does he decide? Yeah, okay, you can go, but you leave your kids behind. And Moses says, no, 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 we all go. And then after a little more bending, what does, Moses, what does Pharaoh say? Okay, all right, you can go, but you have to leave your cattle behind. And what does Moses say? Not a hoof will be left behind. Not a hoof. We all go. And, of course, in the end, guess what? They didn't just all go, but then they plundered all of Egypt in the process. Eh, just a little foreshadow, by the way. Securing the full liberty, the full salvation, the full provision for his own. Simply put, God is. God did accomplish everything that he would accomplish, multiplied by a hundred in the minds of any Israeli. They had no idea what they were about to encounter. What's funny is they immediately went back to badgering God, immediately even after they crossed the Red Sea. How many of us can do the same thing? However, God did accomplish every single thing that he declared that he would accomplish. The ministry of Jesus, we'll call it the breaking of Pharaoh. Of course, Pharaoh, you could call it the back of the devil. You could call it the back of sin. You call it breaking the back of the flesh, the evil regime, the power of darkness. That which holds us in bondage, it is snapped, it is broken. Who did that work? Jesus. Jesus did that work. He is ushered forth in the power of an unstoppable life. And he will gain his ends. So the ten plagues, we'll call those the ministry years. The Passover, we'll call that the cross, which does fit, by the way. And then there's a three-day journey, and we'll call the resurrection the exodus. You see, most of us, when we think about a resurrection, we just think about a coming to life, which is not inaccurate, by the way. That's what it is. However, there's more to resurrection. Resurrection is literally being torn out of the clutches of something else. It is being set free. It is being loosed. It is like having chains on your wrists that are unlocked and fall to the ground. It is like the Israelites being in bondage to Pharaoh and suddenly being the servants of God. And Pharaoh is no more. That's resurrection. You see, resurrection is a deeply meaningful thing to us as Christians, but most of us don't understand fully how it mechanically functions in our life. Resurrection, simply put, to rise from the dead. Uh, that's what it means, by the way. However, for us, it's a little confusing because most of us don't ever recognize that we're dead because we're still alive, aren't we? Well, God says that apart from him, we are dead. You know what death is? It is the absence of life, simply put. In your mortal body, you have a form of life, but you have no spiritual life. So your body is functional. It's still doing what it does. 
However, you are dead in your sin, which means there's an absence of life. You know what darkness is? It's not actually a substance any more than death is. Death has no substance to it. It's just the absence of life. Well, darkness is merely the absence of light. That's all it is. So when you extract light, what do you have? It's dark. But dark isn't some like thick substance, like chalky substance. I don't know what darkness would feel like. Would it be sludgy or would it be chalky? I'm not sure. But it's nothing. It's the absence of that which is something. Light is material. It's matter. But without it, there is only darkness. It is that which is void. And we are void and without God in this world. We are lost. We are dead. And so as a result, to rise from the dead when you don't realize you're dead doesn't make any sense to us. Oh, praise God that he rose. But, but I, I don't have any relationship to that. I don't need to rise. Well, you don't recognize that you're dead. You don't understand how dead you are. You don't understand the sleepy hollow. You don't understand where you're at. Otherwise, you'd be crying out for life. And you hath he quickened. You know, the word quickened in the Bible would be a great study for us. But the word quickened is to bring to life. So, and you hath he quickened. You, he's saying, hath he made alive. That's what he's saying. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, this is the crux of how the gospel works. Jesus has accomplished something on the cross. And in and through that work on the cross, he has made a way for us to have new life. For us to be quickened. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened. Remember what that means? To be made alive. You were made alive. You were resurrected together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So resurrection. Let's look at it in a broader sense. Instead of just, because the the word literally just means to rise up. Sort of like to sit up. Well, that fits. You know, if you're laying flat in your tomb, well, then to sit up, well, something's changed in your life because you can't do that if you're still dead. So resurrection, to be loosed, untied, untethered, unchained from a slave master. You see, your death is that you have forsaken your God and you've lost his paternal protection. You've lost his life. You've lost his everything. You are cut off from him, but you're not just cut off from him on the other side of the room. And he says, come here, little one. You are literally bound in chains. You cannot come near. He must come and get you. You are chained. He must come to rescue you. You have no hope in this world outside of God himself coming out of his way to break your chains. Isn't that an amazing thought? God could so quickly forsake us. Why would he spend any time on us? Have you ever hung around with yourself? (laughs) Why would God care at all about us? And yet he does. He doesn't just care, and it's not just a passing care like, oh, those poor things down there in chains and in bondage. I wish it didn't have to turn out so bad for them. It's not like a pity that he has. It's love. And love moves you to action. If you truly love, you cannot sit by passively. You must engage. And God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus. And Jesus was ushered forth in the authority and the power of an akatolitos life, 
an unstoppable, inextinguishable life that will not return void. It will not return with an empty hand. He will get what he has gone to get. So what are these chains that bind us? Well, you can use your imagination for what these chains are. We, it's called sin in the Bible, but we have a covenant with death, as it says in Jeremiah. You see, when we partook of that which was evil or that which was wrong, back in the garden in the very beginning, God says, do not eat of this tree. The day in which you eat of it, you would surely die. So he gave us a law. It's his perfect righteousness. This is the behavior of those that fit in my kingdom. This is his behavior. And he asks us to live out his behavior. However, when you violate that behavior, there is a very tremendous tearing that takes place. It's called death, but we die in that day. It's called the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. And all of us have sinned, and therefore all of us are dead. What are these chains that bind us? Because you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with hell we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we, shall be made, shall we, so, shall, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. If you make lies your refuge, imagine you make this sort of, uh, what, cardboard house sort of thing made of lies, and the storms come in life. How, how is your house of lies going to stand in the day of judgment? It's, it's going to burn away pretty quick, and there you're going to be underneath it. You see, if you're making anything your refuge outside of Jesus Christ, it will be shown in the day. The problem for every single one of us in here prior to the cross is we have no other refuge other than our lies. We have nothing to turn to. We are guilty before the law of God, every single one of us. Death owns us. Hell has the right to us. Understanding the law of the garbage can. All right, so imagine that this is my house up here, this stage, and my desire is to keep it clean. And so one day I find a banana peel right smack in the middle of the living room. Now, for those of you that keep house regularly, you know that banana peels do not or should not be placed in the middle of the living room floor. So what do you do? Well, out of your house, you make a place, a special place, and we'll call it the trash can. You could call it darkness, but that is getting ahead of myself. We call it the trash can, and it's a place within our place. It still is owned and possessed by us, but it is other than the nature of our house. It smells different than our house. It is not the way we want it, so we close it off, and we make a special place for it, and it's called the trash can. That does not belong here. That goes in there. And so as a result, God in his creation had a perfectly beautiful creation. It was good. It was very good. And then there was a banana peel. God, before that time, had already created the trash can for Satan and all of his cohorts. And as a result, there was already a place. And who ruled that trash can? Satan. He's sort of the king of the trash can. It's called the father of lies. He's the prince of darkness. He is the ruler. He is, uh, what's the guy's name? Abaddon, who is the king of darkness. That's, that's who rules the trash can. I wouldn't want to be in there. That's not a healthy place. However, if you cannot dwell in the light, where do you go? You go to that dark place. 
You know where we live when we are not in Christ, we are not right with God? We live in a trash can where there is corruption. There is a constant breaking down of our soul. And ironically, that breaking down is eternal. Now there is a season when this trash can is still in the house and near the house, and then it will be carried out into outer trash can territory called outer darkness. And yet in this season, we still can be redeemed and rescued from that trash can existence, from that darkness. You tired of living in there? I don't blame you. There's a whole house in which we can live and move and have our being. And that house is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. So understand the law of the garbage can. He that commits sin is of the devil. Isn't that an interesting statement? You see, if you sin, that means you are proving who owns you. You are demonstrating. It's like someone wandering around, like a little piece of trash getting out of the trash can and wandering through, and we're like, what is that smell? That smells like the trash. Aha. Uh-huh. What, what are you doing here? Oh, I, I'm part of the house. Oh, no, you're not. You're of the trash can. You see, you stink like the trash can. You're showing the evidence of the trash can. You have corruption all over you. You see, he that commits sin is of the devil. You have the stink on you. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Why was he manifested? That he might destroy the works of the devil. Him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Isn't that an interesting statement to think that the devil has power? This is exousia, the same word. Jesus said, Jesus came in the power of an endless life. Satan has the power, which is the authoritative power. It's not the muscular power. He has the authoritative jurisdictional power of death. And so that which is of death, he rules over that territory. Mine, he says. This is my territory. You can't touch it. So God could say, hey, I I love those. And he could say, they're mine. And legally, he would be right. They belong to him, not because he purchased them, not because he did anything to deserve them, but simply because he is the head of the trash can. And because sin has entered into them, they now enter into his jurisdiction lawfully. It's disgusting, isn't it? You sin, you die. The law that condemns us. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You see the first law, and you see the first stipulation of consequence. You see, if you eat of this tree, the day in which you do it, I'm giving you my law. Remember, God doesn't change. God is the same. He is. He will always be as he is. And so if he makes a statement, that's a Jehovah word right there which means he cannot alter it. The day in which you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the legalities of it, and God always abides by his law. The legalities are of it. If you have eaten of that tree, you are dead. And the day in which you did, you died. And that death is real death. There's only one thing that solves death, and that's resurrection. Death holds a lawful claim. The soul that sins, it shall die. The soul that sins, it shall die. So I don't know how much you guys know about sin. I don't know if you know about the law of God. However, just a quick perusal of the Ten Commandments, which is basically the revelation of the nature of God, the perfect righteousness of God, would show you quite a list. And some of you just staring at the list could say, well, you know, I've never actually put another God before me. I never bowed down to Buddha. Did you ever put you before God? 
If you ever put yourself before God for one moment in your entire life on this earth, you put a higher priority, you worshiped your agenda more than God's, you have put another God before you. Some of you could say, well, I've never actually taken the name of God in vain. I know there's people that do that, but I, I don't do that. Did you ever call yourself a Christian and bear the name of Jehovah over your life and yet not live the way he has commissioned you to live? That is bearing the name of God in vain. You lived a profane life, meanwhile, under the name of God. Some of you could say, well, come on. I, I, I didn't ever, like, show a dishonor to my parents. Well, that would be hard for you to prove to me. However, <laughs> did you ever show dishonor to your heavenly parent? You see, you truly have a father. Have you ever dishonored him? You see, when you study the law, you begin to realize that at every point we are incriminated. Every point. How about stealing? I don't care if it's a grape. But if you ever stole the glory from God, you have stolen. Have you violated the law? Yes. Every single one of us stands guilty before the bar of judgment. I have sinned. Therefore, rightfully and legally, I'm dead. And I'm cut off. Do you know what you deserve? Yes. I deserve to be cast from your presence forever and for all eternity. I have no means of appeal. I have no ability to promise you that I will change my life because I can't change myself. I am lost without a hope. I'm in chains of darkness and I have no means of escape. You see, outside of God, that would be our conclusion. However, the amazing truth that is woven in and through even the old covenant into the new is that there is a Messiah. There is one who is going to come and he will break those chains. He will set you free. And in the Old Testament, those that went to Abraham's bosom are those that believed. Those that believed the word and the promise. Those that believed in the coming. Those that believed the Christ of God was their salvation. And that outside of such a Christ and such a Messiah, we are lost and without a hope in this world. That is where we place our confidence. It was known as faith. And the same faith saves us. However, we know the proper name of that salvation. Yeshua. We call him Jesus here in America. The Jehovah God has come. The I am has condescended to save me. That's his name. I am has saved me. For the wages of sin is death. For all have sinned. So the moment you try and sneak out, the Bible gets you. Well, and by the way, the wages of sin is death and you sinned. Well, but I, I've done so many good things. Have you ever heard that statement about how a judge works? A judge, if there was a murderer standing before him, does not hear the appeal of, well, I've helped 20 old ladies across the street. Doesn't that cancel out my bad? What kind of judge would he be if he said, oh, that's a good point, and let the murderer go? You see, the murderer is not condemned for what he did do. I'm sorry, what he didn't do or did do somewhere else. He's condemned for the unrighteous act that he did perpetrate. He is guilty before the bar of justice. At one point, he is guilty. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, 
for that all have sinned. Seeing the darkness of our own gravesite, seeing the sleepy hollow of our souls. Now, I want us to go back into ancient Israel about 2,000 years ago, and there is a tomb or a grave, and it's a hollow in the ground. It's a gravesite. It belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. It was just a hole in the ground reserved for burial. And this is actually the very place, imagine that you have been sent. This is your personal gravesite. Now, it's, the reason I have chosen this one is because I know a few details about it. There's obviously some enormous, gigantic stone that is near enough by that we can roll in front of it. So I want us all to go into our own personal gravesite. I know this isn't very fun, but I think it'll help us understand something. So we enter into our little gravesite, and even as we walk in, it's getting darker and darker as we're going into our little hollow in the ground. You see, this is where people lay down and sleep. And yet, we have entered into a very, very dark darkness. Because when that rock, that big stone is placed in front of that cave, it goes pitch black. There is no more light. The light has been cut off completely. You notice that it got very cold in here? Very quickly. And you don't have anything to keep you warm. And as night is approaching you're starting to get the sense that it's only going to get colder. And you know the weather patterns around here. The dead of winter? What's this cave going to feel like? What hope do you have? If you yell right now, who's going to hear you? No one. Do you sense the barrenness and the emptiness and the gnawing of it? Say you want to talk with someone. There's no one to talk to. There's the wall. In the back of the stone. Uh, have you thought about the fact that there's no food here? I mean, you could dig around and look for some roots, but nothing's going to grow in darkness. There's no food. Uh, just out of nowhere, I know, just as I brought up the food thing, you started to get thirsty too. Yeah, uh, I mean, you could try and dig uh, for some well of water, but I'm going to tell you ahead of time, there's no water to be had. Your thirst will never be quenched. You see, unless we begin to understand the sleepy hollow of our own souls, that this is where many of us are sitting, literally right now, and we're actually awake and alive. You see, we are in a season where we can actually still make a choice. We can make a decision. And that's what's amazing about the good news. You see, when you understand where you currently sit, and the lostness with which you tr truly currently are engaged. You know, even outside that, have you ever tried to push the stone? It's like, I'm going to get out of here. Help, help, help. You try and push the stone. Well, first of all, a singular man or woman cannot move it. But say you are really strong. You know, there's guards outside that gate, outside that tomb that are not going to let you go anywhere. You see, I know a few things about this tomb. This is a very specific tomb that has already been opened. And what's amazing is your tomb has been opened. Someone has gone before you, totally undeserving to any of us in this room. He has done the work to open up that tomb, the tomb in which we have sat. I have sinned. This is the beginning point of life. I know it doesn't sound like life, and a lot of people that don't understand Christianity say, oh, it is such a dark 
foreboding belief system. Uh, quite the opposite. Without truth, without the life of Jesus, without the recognition that I need a resurrection, that's what's dark. And whether anyone in this world recognizes how dead they truly are, in the days to come they will certainly find out. Praise God that you're finding out your deadness now instead of later. This is when you want to recognize, I have sinned. I deserve this. And there is nothing inside of me that can rescue myself. I need a savior. The sleepy hollow of hell. It's forever. It's cut off from life. It's inescapable misery. It's without reprieve, without provision, without sleep, without numbing agents, without a deliverer. It's lonely and abandoned. It's sealed with a gigantic stone too heavy for you, a dead man to roll away. It's fiercely guarded lest you ever venture to leave. You're stuck. You're locked in. Don't you feel sort of that, like you can't even get a deep breath? The stone has been rolled away. We are dead and in a sealed and guarded grave. Who can save us from this horrible state? The I am has come. And his name Yeshua means I am saves. Jesus has the power of life. Both the jurisdictional power of life and the strength power of life. There's two powers Two things that are translated as power in Scripture. Exousia, which is the legal power, the authoritative power. And then you have dunamis, which is like a muscular power. It's sort of like the strength of an army. And Jesus has come forth with two powers. He has the power of an endless life, the exousia, the legal authoritative power of an unstoppable life. And he also has the power of God. Dunamis, the strength of an army. We're not talking just some smallish army here. We're talking about the host of heaven. And who has come forth in that power? Jesus, your rescuer. Did you call on him yet? Because, you know, I would highly advise it. Have you felt the deadness of your soul? Have you been awakened to say, Jesus, help me. For without you, I'm a lost man. I'm dead. I'm dead in my sin, even as I live. As the, as, for as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom he will. What a strange statement. As the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, he makes them alive, even so the Son quickens whom he will. Have you ever heard that scripture where there was a, I don't remember what ailment he had, but he was blind, uh, crippled, I don't remember which one it was, but he asked God to heal him. And he said, will you? And Jesus answers, I will. It's a statement of will, of desire. And even so, the son quickens whom he will. Well, Jesus, do you desire to quicken me? I will. He's already desirous. You know, one of the statements I oftentimes make at Ellerslie is, if you desire to be quickened, If you desire to be saved by Jesus, it's because he desires to save you. That's the evidence and the proof within your soul. Do you want out of the prison cell? Do you want out of the tomb? Yes. That's because he wants to save you. Even so, the son quickens whom he will. He wills. He desires. Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Anyone who turns to me, I'm telling you right now, you desire it, I will. I will to save you. I will to give you my life. Turn to me. Believe on me. And I guarantee you, this stone is rolled away. You come out into the open air of freedom. Smell it. Smell the flowers. Hear the birds chirping. See the light of day. And that light will never end. This is an everlasting life. So it's a promise. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. Isn't that an interesting statement? So remember that argument in the beginning, who, rose, who raised Jesus from the dead? I could make argument for all three, very easily. He, Jesus says that I might take it again. It's like, I took up my own life, he could say. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. How many people do you know that can determine their death? how they're going to die, and when they're going to die. I mean, this is extraordinary. And to perfectly match it with the entire Old Testament. He has power to do it. And then look at this next line. And I have power to take it again. What? He has power to choose his death. And he has power to determine his resurrection. Who is this guy? Has anyone ever told you that he's God? This is God with the authority of what we call life. He has the exousia of an endless life. He has the authority of akatolitos life, the unstoppable life. I choose, he says. I'm in charge here, he says. Life belongs to me. This domain is mine. You say, well, what about death? Death has no power over me. I am life. That's who we're talking about here. The one who humbled himself and became obedient unto death to feel the ravages that we were meant to feel, to feel the punishment and the penalty that was aimed towards us, rightfully and legally so. It was satisfied in him. And yet who satisfied it? The God of life. You see, the one whose flame cannot be put out. You see, he wins. He has an akatolitos life and he will not be put aside. He will not be diminished. It's a guarantee he will gain his ends and he will live. He is life. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. The great redemption, the amazing work of unstoppable life. Jesus might taste death for everyone. Isn't that an incredible statement? Every single one of us is deserving of the condemnation and the full ravaging effects of death. You see, we are all deserving of that great penalty, the ravaging and the corruptions of death. And yet, he tasted death for everyone. That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You see... Everything he did was in perfect alignment with his nature. Everything he did was legal. Do you know that he did not rob us from the devil? He judged the devil, crushed his head, absolutely dismembered him, and that ransom that was paid 
was not paid to him. It's not like he came out cash rich in this situation. The ransom or the redemptive payment had to do with the law stipulated against us. He took his own blood and sprinkled it on the propitiatorium, which is the Ark of Covenant, to the Father. He satisfied. It's called the atonement. He satisfied all justice, all legal judgment against us with his own blood. Everything he did was perfectly just and legal. And meanwhile, he says, I'll take back what belongs to me. Thank you. Crushed his head at the same time. He wins. Always wins. Our Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Isn't that an amazing statement? He abolished death. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all should be made alive. When we sin, we prove that we are from the trash can. The other thing we prove is that we are in Adam, which means our clothing, our disposition, our scent, our smell is of Adam. We are of this earth. We are earthy, which means we are controlled by the flesh. There is a dimension in us which takes our cravings and our natural appetites and inflames them, and we find those things controlling our life here on earth. And when you are controlled by the flesh, you smell of the trash can. You smell of Adam. You smell of the one who had no restraint at the tree. He saw something that tantalized his senses and he ate it. The first Adam failed. Eve came to him. I'm not sure what the discussion was and how it all worked. All we know is that Eve had a conversation with a serpent. She bought the lie, the first false doctrine that ever entered into the human race. She believed it. She denied God who had given her his word and she believed the word of the devil over the word of God. And that transaction led to an entrance of defeat into us as humans. But all we know is that Eve took of that fruit, ate it, and then gave it to Adam. What's Adam doing? And most of us struggle, and because some people, the poor ladies in here have gotten a bad rap for this whole occasion over the years. And yet, what was Adam doing? Adam was the priest of Eden. He was the one that was put as the head of this first family. He's the protector. And as a result, in this situation, what was God's word? The day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. And what he should have seen instantly is, Eve, you ate of it. Eve, you ate of it. What was his job as the priest of Eden? To go to God. Say, God, my wife, my wife has broken your law. And what would God have said? She's died as a result, Adam. She must be cut off. There must be death because of this transgression. I know God. But I love her. Is there anything that can be done? There must be death, Adam. Take me. Take me instead. The first Adam failed in his role. Jesus is known as the last Adam. Jesus came to this earth, and what did he do? God the just says death is required, Jesus. And Jesus, in the form of an Adam, in the skin of an Adam, stands as our priest, intercedes and says, is there another way? Yes, your life for theirs. 
Take my life, Father. Take my life. Spend it. Put the punishment of their sin upon me. And the second Adam set us free. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. In is a location term. To be inside of something. If you are in a plane and the plane takes off, where do you go? You go where the plane goes. What if you are outside the plane esteeming the plane? Well, then when the plane takes off, you go nowhere, except for you maybe get a little exhaust in your face. You see, the key in Christianity, just like in planes, is to be inside. And if you remain in Adam, it's clothing, then you die as Adam would die. You see, those which bear the clothing of Adam end up in the trash can. There is a grave that has been set aside, a big stone that is put in front of it. There's a hollow that has been made in God's territory for those that bear the sense of that rebellion. But God says, I've stitched together at the cross a garment. It's my very life. And if you will turn and repent of your Adam rebellion, and you will come unto me, this garment is yours. And I will clothe you in it. And no longer will you be termed in Adam or in the old man. But you will be a new man, a new creature in Christ. You will be in me. So let me read this again. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. What's your position? In Christ. So if you're in Christ, you are made alive. That's a fact. You have life. You have life made abundantly available to you because you're in Christ. The Christophany, the one who will come in the power of the unstoppable life. Who is that one? It's not Moses. It's Jesus. But he came after the pattern of Moses. He was a prophet likened unto Moses, is what it says of Jesus. And he came and devastated the powers of Pharaoh. He devastated the power of sin. Egypt is symbolic of the world system. He devastated it and set us free and calls us out from the midst of it and says, be ye free from that. Be at liberty from this in bondagement. In the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. You know who this is? This is a priest who has come. He's a priest, one who stands in the gap one who stands as a mediator. We do not have a priest from the Hebrew lineage. We have a priest from the heavenly lineage who does not suffer and die as normal men do. Every other priest that has ever lived before Jesus has an expiration date, and they too will die and be laid to rest. But our priest does not die. He's life. That's who he is. He's life, and that life is eternal. It's everlasting. And so he always stands in that position. Your status with God will not shift day to day. It's not hinging upon a mortal priest, but one who comes in the power of an unstoppable life. One whose life is everlasting. One who ever lives to make intercession for you. The same way he stood on that cross for you. Is the same way he stands today for you. You have such a high priest. You have such an 
intercessor, such a priest of Eden standing on your behalf. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. That scripture, I know the word holden doesn't translate very well to most of us in modern America. To be held, you guys know what that means. Because it was not possible that he should be held by death. It's not right. It's not appropriate. I had in this message the eight things that made it absolutely mandatory that Jesus would raise from the dead. I had to take it out just for, for length. One of them is because God said it in his word. No, his holy one will not see corruption. It's that simple. Fact. God spoke it. It will be done. But there's another one. This is really fascinating. And that is the priest that has come is forever. And he comes in the power of an unstoppable life. So therefore, his office as priest must continue. He stood as priest on the cross, and guess what? He's not done. Hey, guys, uh, we have an everlasting priest here that will ever live to make intercession for us, so he's coming back. Don't worry. He's coming. He has an unstoppable life. Uh-huh, yeah, see the stone rolling? Yeah, there, whoa, here comes some bright light. There he is. There he is. There's our priest. He is risen. You guys, should we try that again? That was sort of pathetic. You guys weren't <laughs> expecting that one. He is risen! Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. That's our God, who has come in the power of Akatolitas life. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. Why? By the resurrection from the dead. This is the seal and this is the sign that he is in fact the son of God. Most of us don't fully appreciate what that means. He is by actual biological seed the son of God. He is in his very makeup in his very chemistry, in his very physiology, even in the natural realm, he is, yes, he was born of the seed of a woman, but he was also born of the seed of God. The rest of us are adopted in him. He's actual seed. He is the very real substance of God. You are sons and daughters of God, grafted in, adopted in, by faith in Christ Jesus into the Son who is a Son. And He has the full inheritance of a Son. And as we believe in Christ, we share in His Sonship. And all of His inheritance is made available to us. But He is, in fact, the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And it was proven by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus entered into our death cave with his inextinguishable life. And all hell's garrison couldn't stop him from blasting through the immovable stone and walking out victorious. Listen to this line. With us in his almighty arms. It's not just that he rose from the dead. It's that he raised us up from the dead. He removed the stone and carried us out into life. This is more than just a historic event where a great man rose, which is an extraordinary tale, believe me. 
But this is your resurrection. You mark your spiritual lineage. You mark your life back to that day. This is a birthday for every single one of us. The assurance of the believer. Though you today be found in a sleepy hollow, turn unto Jesus, and you will be enveloped in the unstoppable life of Jesus Christ. And that life will not be denied, but will indeed gain its ends, supplying quickening grace unto all who come unto him. The unstoppable priest, he guarantees to save us to the uttermost, to the most extreme degree, whatever you need salvation for. See, most of us, when we think about salvation, we think of salvation simply from the sleepy hollow. However, we, are, we have such a high priest that will save us to the uttermost from every bondage and every shackle that may still remain. Imagine you arrested from the hands of the devil. However, you still have manacles on your wrists. You're free, sort of. You still have vestiges of the past life. And what kind of high priest do you have? One that will save you to the uttermost. One of the things that I've struggled with in my Christian life is we have these gradients of vices. For instance, for a man, lust and a pornographic addiction might be ranking near the top. It's like, oh, if only you have such a high priest. And he would love to save you from it. And he will indeed do exactly that. He doesn't just save you from the penalty of it. He saves you from the problem of it so that you truly can live in his living room and not show the scent of the garbage can upon your life. But then we have other gradients, smaller things in our life, like bad moods, shifts of of behavioral patterns throughout our day where we just get irritated or frustrated. Why are you putting up with that? Don't you know that you have such a high priest? You see, many of us allow for a certain vestige or scent from that garbage can. It's, it's almost like a banana peel on the end of our, our, or the bottom of our shoe that we're dragging around. It's getting that little slimy stuff all over our kitchen floor. And, so, and someone says, why are you doing that? Well, you know, the cross can only go so far. I'm just happy that I'm out of the trash can. Well, how about you get all of that trash can back in the trash can and you keep separate from it? It's called holiness. You know what holiness means? Other than. You see, we can't whip up holiness. I don't know if any of you have ever tried. It's not that easy. It's the behavior of God. It's the nature of God and you can't mimic it. However, when you come to Jesus Christ, he gives you his life and his life is called the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. It's God who specializes in holy. He's good at it. His whole life is holy. And so when he moves in, what does he do? He makes you like himself. It's called sanctification. And he makes you holy. He says, you know that banana peel there? You're like, oh, yeah, that thing? Yeah, that's been with me for 20 years. You know what? You're not supposed to be dragging that through the kitchen. And we're like, what? Really? That's right. You see, I'm going to save you to the uttermost. We're going to take that banana peel, and we're going to stick it where banana peels go. Are you okay with that? I guess. I just didn't know that was possible. Well, we need to start believing in our great high priest. Don't we know what he's done? He has delivered us from these shackles. All of them. Every last one of them. So that our life would demonstrate his life. And when someone investigated us and they sniffed us, they sniff a different region. They sniff a different behavior. Who is this? Well, you see, it's not me. It's Christ in me. But what you're smelling, 
either you're liking it or not, uh, is, is him. It's that simple. You see, we are the bearers of his life. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. So how are you going to overcome that banana peel? The same way you overcame everything else. By the power of his endless life. That power, that authority has been given us in Christ Jesus. It's an unstoppable life. It's a life that wins at every turn. Do you have any nooks and crannies in your life where you finally just shut the door on them? It's sort of like a little cabinet. It's like you've been trying to clean that cabinet for 20 years. And you're so sick and tired, no matter how much you clean it, it gets dirty again. And so you finally just close it off and act like it's not there. You know what I want us to do as the body of Christ today? I want to freshly go to that cabinet and say, He lives! It's a fact! And if he lives, that means he thoroughly takes us out of Egypt, thoroughly removes us from the trash can, all vestige of it, all scent of it. Let him do his work. Let him do a fresh work within you to bring about a resurrection life at every turn, every aspect of our being. He has loosed every chain. Not a single manacle should be cherished on our wrists, but rather every last one should be vigorously thrown aside in celebration of his great work. The man among the tombs. Do you guys remember that man among the, in the Gadarenes? Jesus gets off a boat and there's this crazy man. Well, let's uh, <clears throat> get familiar with this crazy man and let's uh, link this crazy man to us. There met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. Uh, where, where's our dwelling? Yeah, that's about similar, isn't it? Remember that, uh, that one tomb that we had? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's similar. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. Pretty miserable life. What does this man need? He needs the resurrection life. He needs Jesus, the man at the feet of Jesus. Then they came out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man. What had happened? Well, he'd run into Jesus. And when any of us turn unto Jesus, everything changes. Out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Clothed. And in his right mind. What an incredible statement. Living in the tombs, living in despair, to suddenly having hope, sound of mind, sound of body, with the clothing of Christ put on him. Resology, remember our study? Our study in the resurrection? It's a study of a person. I, I love this. I mean, I truly love this. I could ask you about the resurrection. Most of us start to look for data. We start to think through facts about it. Well, it was three days in length. Uh, you could have all sorts of things that you could say. By the way, I had so many rabbit trails. I was telling the staff this. So many rabbit trails I, I was trying not to get off on all week long. I chopped out some doozies of uh, little sections. And yet it's like, we need to stay focused here. This is one amazing thing to get yourself involved in as far as a study. But look at this. It's a study of a person. Every single thing you could ever study in Scripture. You want to study soteriology? The study of, it's the study of uh, salvation. It's a person. Who's the salvation of his people? It's Jesus. It's not a science. It's not just a theology. It's not just five points. It's a person. How many people have five points and miss the person? Who saves me? It's not a dogma. It's not a doctrine. It's a person. And it's faith in a person that saves me. How about eschatology? 
The study of the end. Who's the beginning and the end? It's a person. He's called the end of all things. When you get to the end, there's a lot of surprises probably for quite a few of us in this room, but there's one thing that will not be a surprise. He's there. He is the end. Study cosmology. The beginning. He's also the beginning. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He is. How about the study of Sabbath? He is the rest. It is all about him. You study any of these things, if you miss him, you miss the whole kit and caboodle. So we start studying resurrection. You can get all the details down, all the facts. You get it all right. I have a hunch the devil knows a lot of facts about the resurrection. However, what's the key about the resurrection that you must know? It's a person. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection. Uh, I thought the resurrection was an event. No, no, it's me. You see, Jesus is, in fact, the life. He is that which raises us up. He is that which takes away all the manacles and all the bondages. He is the unbound one. He is the unstoppable life. And he says, you need that unstoppable life, that life that raises dead men to life. You know what was just about to happen here? Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. I am the resurrection, says Jesus. I am. You want resurrection life? I can tell you where to get it. It's found in Jesus Christ. You want to fly from Denver, Colorado to New York City? I can tell you how. You get in a plane. You want to get from your tomb to the glory of the throne room of grace? I can tell you how. Get in Jesus. Get into Christ. Trust him with your life. Throw aside all the weights that beset you. Get rid of that old life, that old Adam stink. Turn unto Jesus and let him put his scent upon you. Let him clothe you in that which he stitched upon the cross just for you. Let him dress you in it and put you in your right mind. Let him establish you as one who lives and who will never die. And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. This is Charles Spurgeon uh, talking. So this is from one of his sermons. Uh, You remember that when Pharaoh told Moses that the men among the children of Israel might go into the wilderness to offer sacrifice, he said that they must leave their little ones behind. But Moses would not accept that condition. The next time Pharaoh said, go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses answered, you must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not a hoof be left behind. All that was of Israel was to go with Israel. And that is still our master's will and way. I love this. So I'm going to read that last line again. All that was of Israel, Jesus, was to go with Israel. Jesus. So let me read that with Jesus in there. And all that was Jesus's was to go with Jesus. And that is still our master's will and way. Where I am, he says, there shall my people be also. If I am in the grave, they must be in the grave. Buried with me. If I rise, they shall rise. For if I will not rise, for I will not rise without them. And if I go to heaven, I will not go without them. This is our joy, and with dear old Rowland Hill we sing. And this I do find, we two are so joined, he'll not be in glory and leave me behind. 
What's your position, saints of God? If you're in Christ, that means when he went to the cross, you went to the cross. He did not leave you behind. But you had a problem, and that was an old man. And an old man that you cannot seem to get detached from. His stink is on you. And so what does Jesus say? Believe in me. And when you believe in him, you are his. You are part of him. You are clothed in him. And as a result, when he goes to that cross, what happens? You go to that cross, and his death is your death. And the old man is crucified. As Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. And when he was buried, where do you go? You go to that tomb, and your old man is laid aside as a dead husk. It is no longer seen. It is buried. And when that stone rolls away, where does he go? He walks out. And where are you? You're in him. And he is not going to leave you behind. And so he takes you out of that tomb. He brings you into the life. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And where are you located? What's your position? So if you're in Christ and he goes to the right hand of the Father, what does it say in Ephesians 2? We are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you are in him, you are where he is. And he is seated at the highest place, the place of all dominion, all power, and authority. He has exousia, which means authority. What kind of authority? He came ushering forth in the authority of an endless life, an akatolatos life. And where are you? You're in that life. You're in a life that is unstoppable. The devil wants to quell. The devil wants to quench, but he has no power over the life in whom you live and whom you have your being. You have victory in Jesus Christ. So our Jesus, as our high priest, stood as Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. And he said, let my people go. He says, they're mine. I will not let them go. And what did Jesus do? He bent the devil to the point where at the cross, literally, he severed his legal connection over us. And when he said, let my people go, he had no more appeal, no more statement. They're not yours anymore, aren't they? They're mine. You see, the law of sin and death says when you sin, you die. But there's a higher law. When you believe, you live. When you believe, you live. Because you could say, well, what about all my sinning and all my dying? Well, the law of gravity will always hold you down. It's true. And the law of gravity is still out there. The law of sin and death is still a very real law. However, there's a higher law, and it's called the law of aerodynamics. And if you enter into this plane and trust it to do your flying for you, you will fly. But that's impossible. According to the law of gravity, everything is a downward push. Well, that's true. However, there's a higher law. The law of you believe, you live. You believe in the work of Jesus Christ. You believe in the efficacy of his shed blood. You believe that he is. He has done it, and only he can do it. And guess what? The law of gravity no longer has hold over you. The law of sin and death, you're now dead to it. If you're in a plane, you're not concerned about the law of gravity. You have a higher law, and your confidence is in this contraption, this plane's ability to pull it off. And you don't just have a plane. You have an akatolatos life, the unstoppable life of God Almighty. That is the one in whom you trust. And he will not be denied. He lives. And he ever lives.
to stand and be our rescuer. There shall not a hoof be left behind. Could you imagine Jesus saying that? All that is mine goes. Not a scrap of it, not a hoof will be left behind. And that's the way I look at our life. Don't just let him redeem the big part of you. Let him get all the small parts too. Don't just have, let, allow Pharaoh to con you into thinking, oh, he only let the, the adults go into the wilderness to worship. No, also the children. And not just the children, all the cattle. Not a hoof shall be left behind. His salvation, his redemption, his resurrection life needs to be for every hoof. Every little bit of it needs to be purged from this land of Egypt. It all goes with Israel. All of it, every bit of it exits. And so, we exit in obedience to God Almighty. Every single one of us rises up. Every part of our life, our thought life, our emotional life, our addictions, our cravings, it doesn't matter what it is, every single bit of it has been bought and purchased by his blood. And he says, every hoof, not one will be left behind. Let's go, guys. Let's get out of this garbage can. Let's get out of this place of death. The stone is rolled away. And as a finishing meditation, indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? You see, what we are meditating upon today is just a small whisper. <laughs> these are just the edges of his ways. We hardly understand a thing, and we stand mesmerized and mystified of the great power of our great God. But the thunder of his power, who could possibly understand it? We're struggling comprehending a whisper, but how about the thunder? Praise God. Let's thank God for what he's done. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.